Welcome back to Walking Away from Arcadia. This is Simon, and Victor is here with me too. Today is the first episode of our third season. Yay! In which we will be going down the canon history of Changeling the Dreaming with a little bit of real world like publishing date and who did what and why we think that happened, commentary interspersed. We'll be following the canon history as our timeline, so we're starting with the Time of Legends, everybody's favorite thing to have conspiracy theories about. Yay, Misty Remembrance! Canon, for this particular episode, is going to have some very strong scare quotes. We're going to talk about what was written for Changeling for the Mythic Age, but canon, question mark. And to kick that joyous little bit off, we're actually going to start with what about that prequel thing that maybe isn't a prequel and talk a little bit about Fair Folk. There's obviously a Fair Folk first edition review episode out there to go with this, and then Graceful Wicked Masks, when we talked about that previously. We'll link those in the description. But how does it relate to the Mythic Age? How do you feel about that, Simon? I think there are some really interesting places in the Changeling canon that very unintentionally line up with stuff that's in Exalted, and that it is a useful framework if you're ever going to do a game that involves a lot of personal remembrance from characters or a lot of traveling very deep into the dreaming. But otherwise... It's not super relevant most of the time. I would agree with that. The one thing I would say is ignore the Exalted story entirely. You know, we've talked about it a little bit elsewhere. I don't think it's useful when thinking about the Mythic Age for Changeling. But I agree there are some concepts that frame details with the Mythic Age really nicely. Thinking about how they describe the psychology of the Raksha is useful if you want to have uh, really lost changelings or have your changelings wander way off into the deep dreaming and discover old monstrous things. And there are pieces of the story, like the Valorian Crusade, that are clearly parallels to the Fomorians, that that original rush of wild that just hated existence for existing stands in pretty nicely for the Fomorians. And I also feel like reading what went on and the couple of little pieces that do seem to have parallels and going, okay, as a thought experiment, what if this really did happen? This this is what happened. And then look at Misty Remembrance and how did things twist and turn? Even if you don't use that exact story, That exercise gives you some nice insight into what is remembrance, what is the Valley of the Mists, how did these things get rewritten. And I feel like it's a lot more approachable than, say, Dark Ages Fae, which is farther afield from a narrative standpoint. One of the things I found doing the the reading for this episode was that some of the She House stories line up with the Fair Folk and the Graceful Wicked Masks idea that when the fair folk entered creation they designed their own forms but those designs were 
the holes in them were filled in by cultural standards at the place they entered reality, which in Fair Folk, that always kind of read as kind of an awkward, like, insertion. But in the context of Changeling and the way Changelings are deeply affected by culture, that contextualizes much better. Yeah, I would agree with that. The other piece of especially Graceful Wicked Masks, this is not in First Edition Fair Folk, at least not in a particularly well-developed way, but reading about the unshaped and the Lords of Chaos and thinking about what modern changeling would be if it had grown from that, I find to be a really useful process. It opened a lot of ideas that I've used in my games, thinking about certain unshaped that's still existing and maybe a realm of the dreaming would be an unshaped. Uh, when you read about the kingdoms of the inanime, I really imagine those kingdoms as being unshaped, which is why they still have such identity. If you tweak the unshaped a little and say, all right, instead of just having these figureheads, and if I become shaped at all, I'm completely destroyed, and instead imagine them as wellsprings that could let little bits of them become shaped, and imagine those little bits could become a house or a kith or you know, a phyla of an anime, and you could go back to that source. I find that to be a really interesting idea. I've used that in a game. I've had uh, Skaha in this particular case. It was a Sorcerer's Crusade game, but I had Skaha involved, and she intentionally went back and unwove herself and became the expansive, unshaped version of herself that my mages then had to quest into because of what was going on in the story. And it played out pretty well. And I used the questing into model from Graceful Wicked Masks, and it, it played really nicely, actually, especially given that in modern Changeling, you have to quest into the Dreaming to get rid of banality, and you could introduce new concepts like questing into the Dreaming to change your nature a little bit, to get rid of a problematic legacy, to, you know, you discover something about yourself that you hate, and it's causing banality, and how do you become better while still remaining whole, and maybe that goes into questing back into the dreaming. And there's a model for that in Exalted that I think does work in Changeling, and it's a good place to open up Remembrance of the Mythic Age. Don't use the Exalted story for Changeling. It doesn't really map, but they're concepts that are practically useful at the table in a Changeling game. One of the interesting things that I thought, as we move forward in the canon make some reappearances is the idea that the unshaped are on one end of the extreme and then there are humans and their calcifying effect on the other end of the extreme and in fair folk and in graceful wicked masks in the middle are the shaped fair folk who can't go back to what they were and can't deal with reality in a meaningful way without being calcified and in the exalted timeline calcification is kind of their death but their death introduces something new into reality and it's kind of implied that it's this insidious force that is causing reality to metastasize beyond all control i'm not entirely sure that was intentional but it lines up with the basic world of darkness wild weaver worm plot pretty well in the next segment where we talk about what Changeling itself says about this time period. There are interesting 
callbacks I'm going to call them to this idea. Again, I don't think they were really intentional because I don't think the plot was that well mapped out, but it comes up again and again. I think that there is some some useful stuff to, to pull from there, but just know that you're really going to have to transform it. I also think there are some interesting ideas speaking to that idea of questing into the dreaming to get rid of banality and thinking about the whole werewolf story about Weaver is trying to trap weird. The way questing into the unshaped is described is the unshaped are getting a little bit of banality from the shape, but only a little bit, because otherwise they're raw, untapped chaos, and they want to improve themselves, but they're not quite willing to shape themselves entirely. They're trying to have their cake and eat it too. And if you take that forward into the modern world of darkness and go, I can quest into the dreaming to get rid of a banality. Well, where does that banality go? Oh, the whole point of these quests were to give banality to the unshaped so they could become something without truly leaving. Except Weaver is trying to like corrupt and trap wild. And even if that's not really what's going on, there's a really interesting crossover story there about some werewolves seeing changelings go through this and learning enough about it because maybe one of them is fey-blooded and they can see it and they get into the dreaming and they think they see it through their lens and their mythology and like you are an agent of Weaver trying to corrupt and trap weird and we have to destroy you. I love my crossover and even though I'm not a Garu guy first, I feel like there's a story there that to see the full shape of, you kind of have to look back at Exalted. And that plays an interesting spin on the tired old thing that changelings are supposed to be avatars of the wild. I mean, in some ways they are, but it's more interesting if they're messy. Yes, it really, really is. The other thing that I get from the idea that when Fae die, they become some kind of part of reality in the far mythic is that that creates an interesting space for the inanime to be introduced because they're fundamentally aspects of the natural world, whether that's geography or something a little bit more transient, like an air current or a water current. They get left behind a lot of the time by changeling, especially in the mythic age. That seems like a really sneaky way for them to like bust into the picture in a really kind of violent way and then come back later when they wake up from the terrible thing that happened to them. Yeah, that's very true. And I think that's also an interesting way of looking at the one other thing in Exalted that kind of paints a picture of what the Mythic Age might have looked like, and that's the assumption charms that originally the Fae could move between these different forms and they maybe collected charms. One of those charms is basically, hey, I'm an element. And what it would look like to take on that identity for the first time. And if you wanted to use the idea of where did these things first come from, really? What did it look like to choose to be fire? Do you want to express that through making an oath with fire? Is fire fey? The other thing that I think is important when looking at Exalted is to remember that all your changelings remember this stuff differently. So picking some tidbit from Exalted like that and then 
feeding different versions of the story that are all actually a retelling of whatever you've decided truth is to different people or to have different NPCs have different interpretations of them can unfold in really interesting ways if you have the right players who get into that kind of thing and see the way you've done that. We've wandered through the Exalted, the prequel. Now, the next part is to talk about the Mythic Age as it's written about in Changeling texts. One of the things that we did is we went back through the books, kind of looking at them in the order that they were written, and we discovered that there's a really interesting arc and that the Mythic Age has changed, not in an intentional, oh, we're always going to write it differently because of Misty Remembrance, but like there are discrete eras in the history of Changeling where the writers were clearly writing to one story and they changed it and then they changed it again and then they changed it again. Some of these changes were more intentional than others. We'll kind of start with the original first edition Mythic Age. And the original first edition Mythic Age was mostly written about in Changeling first edition, The Shining Host, and then I think Isle of the Mighty, really the books we found that talked about this version. And it's, I would say, a very generic in the mythic age, in the time of legends, fairies walked the earth and were gods. Everything existed as one, the kind of early World of Darkness pitch, but you don't have any real characters. I think the Tuaha are mentioned in The Shining Host. I don't even know that they're mentioned in Changeling First Edition. They might be in The Shining Host. The Fomorians are not mentioned in the Mythic Age write-up. They show up in the back of the book, and it basically says, oh, Fomori, a la werewolf, are Fomorians, and they're banal. Full stop, we're done here. So there isn't a ton written about it, and it's a little bit generic. I don't know, Simon, what did you think about the writings from sort of that period of the game development? I think some of the better Dark Ages Fae tie-ins and some of the better crossover material occurs in this period. To be completely honest, I don't have a copy of First Edition Changeling, weirdly. I do have Shining Host and Isle of the Mighty, and... Shining Host probably paints the most interesting picture of what happened in this version of the the Time of Legends, because the creation story all revolves around the Tuatha came, and they were the first to give humanity the power to dream, and that brought the world to life, where before it was just a dead thing full of basically animals doing animal things. It divides the world in a very kind of weirdly greek way into the three ages of man based on metals which is i remember that from i think hesiod but it also introduces the idea that the sundering wasn't just the earth sundering from the dreaming it was also the face sundering into multiple different things because from their perspective all of the creatures in the world of darkness are some sort of fey cousin thing that degenerated because it lost its connection to the dreaming it's a weird thing because it's it's a little bit vague compared to the other iterations of the idea, but at the same time, it probably tried the hardest to put the Fae in a place that fits in with the rest of the World of Darkness. I would agree with that. Shining Host especially did a lot of work to put the Fae in a specific position relative to the rest of the World of Darkness. It spent 
a little more time on antagonists and their relationship with them and talking about prodigals. While I didn't like the banal fairies angle that the Fomorians represented and then kind of got grafted onto the Thalane eventually, even though we'll talk about the Thalane in one of the later pivots, they changed as well. I did kind of like the hook into the Fomori. I mean, they are two places in the world of darkness that invoked that myth. It's a little bit sad that we missed that. I wish that it had been more elegantly done instead of just thrown out, but it wasn't all that well done in the beginning. So maybe on the whole, we're in a better place, but... Well, first edition World of Darkness is rocky. It's true, but that does kind of get us forward into the first pivot, which is still first edition. This is interesting. It's one of the few times I've seen a game massively redesign its intent in the middle of an edition. In Court of All Kings, which is one of the Immortal Eyes game companions, they suddenly introduce the first version of the story we're all a little bit more familiar with, of the Fomorians as predating the Twahadadanan, being these huge, you know, monstrous, terrible things that were tyrants. They hewed to the actual invasion cycle really closely, though. Uh, not exactly. They, they did a little bit of their own thing. But it starts with the Fomorians occupying Ireland, and then the Fearbolg came, and the Fomorians oppressed them and enslaved them, and then eventually the Fearbolg rose up and overthrew them. And then the Tuathadanan appear and go to war with the Fomorians. And they tell the story of Lu. They do an interesting thing where they set up Lu as the founder of House Balor. Might be the first time House Balor is mentioned, I think. And they list what his deformity is. You know, they introduce the deformity and they say he was known as Lu Longarm, which was thought to be about the fact that he used a spear and attacked everyone from a distance, but also his arms were unusually long. I had never seen that before, and I don't think it appears in the Valor write-up later. So it's this interesting, very close to the mythology, but not exactly take. And in Shadow Court that came out around the same time, they introduced the Thalane. I don't tie them to the Fomorians exactly, but it gives Balor its full write-up as a house and kind of ties everything together in the Shadow Court. Kind of a big companion piece, but it in bits and pieces. I don't know, Simon, what was your thought when you read over some of this stuff? Yeah, when I was in Court of All Kings, it was interesting because that, that pivot there for what the Fomorians were hit me. They were describing them as nightmare er I mean, it really depends on how you interpret that, because it could be that they predate the Fae, and therefore they are the ur or it's that they're some way more archetypical than the Tuaha were, which is just, I don't know, I think I'm a little bit stuck on that word choice, because it, it does not make clear what they intended. But if we're hewing to the invasion cycle the way they seem to be, then they meant that the Fomorians came first, therefore they're the Urfei. It struck me when I was reading this that the Balorians end up being founded by somebody who shows up in both the Invasion Cycle and the Mabinogian under different names. I understand why Lu is Balor, playing with the whole Lu being 
Balor's grandson and fated to kill him. And they tell that whole story lightly in Court of All Kings. It comes up in the next pivot much more strongly when you get to the actual House Balor section in the many, many she books. So I, I understand why they wanted to tell that story. The other thing I found really interesting about this pivot, and it was something I didn't even realize, the first edition representation of the Mythic Age is very culturally specific. In the write-up, it even goes so far as to say that the issue resent people saying that they descended from the Tuatha Dé Danann. That really jumped out at me. And then later, when I was reading about the Mythic Age in... I forget which of the immortalized books, which subtitle deals with Hawaii. It presents an entire story for the Menahune and does not connect them to Arcadia at all. And it does not connect them to the Tuatha Dé Danann. And then you get into C20 and these Fae from other groups are specifically invoked in ways that tie them to the Fomorians or to Arcadia. There's this bit in C20 where a Selkie comes up onto Hawaii before the shattering makes it there and warns the Menahune about the closing of Arcadia. And they're like, oh, Arcadia will never close. What are you talking about? And I read that and I thought, this was a choice. And in one of the Thalane write-ups, I forget if it was the Nunyahi or the Menahune Thalane specifically invokes being a servant of the Fomorians. And I went, oh, okay. And putting the higher hunting ground in Arcadia. Like, it's all over C20. This like explicit cultural generic, they all come from these Irish things or Greek things in the case of the concept of Arcadia. And in first edition, they very explicitly pushed away from that. Yeah, it, there was even a yeah. really interesting little sidebar, and I think it was Isle of the Mighty, where they were talking about the homeland of the She or the Fae generally talking about how it was the hidden part of Ireland specifically that eventually became Arcadia, which is just one of those things that like I probably glossed over it the first time I read it because I was like, eh, I don't care about that. But in the context of like this project, I read that and I was just like, you know, it'd be nice if anybody kept notes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I understand that you can only stay so consistent when writing for these game books in terms of resources and, and how much writer's time is worth relative to what they get paid i've been down that road now having a couple credits i i get that but at the same time the big goals the what is our design goal what are we saying and what should we communicate in our outlines you know c20 has a decidedly different cultural statement and it's consistent throughout c20 as opposed to this statement about these cultures get to be distinct and while all of these are part of the Fae species, in the same way that, you know, all humans are the same species, they get to have their own manifestations in those older times that are about their cultures and their places. And they very much took that approach in first edition with the mythic yeah, age. Yeah, even, even jumping back to Exalted for a second, even Exalted, for all of its weird... Pan-Asia, Asia is one place and we're using Asia drag to make this all seem very alien thing. They still had that call out for the Fae that, you know, the culture they enter the world into is the one that determines a lot of their incidental appearance and behavior. C20 yeah. didn't really buy that. 
No, and you know, I think that this might just seem like us nitpicking, but I actually think that this is really important at your table if you are going to run a game with more than one group. If you run a purely Cathane game and it's it's Cathane all day long, whatever, these these backstories are going to play basically the same way. The instant you introduce Menahune, Nunihi, Hisien, making a decision about what are the general assumptions? How would a Menahune react if some Selkie starts talking at them about Arcadia? Like, of course, we have a common context. Knowing that and making a decision at your table about what that conversation looks like is going to inform things. And making sure your players understand when you start the game, all right, golden rule, I get to decide what the assumptions, what the cultural context is that you're existing in at your table. Part of looking at the mythic age and why this is important and is is practically applicable is you want to communicate that to your players. Those cultural assumptions are important. As much as I'm not a fan of the she, one of the many she books, the one that introduces House Icene, goes out of its way to say, hey guys, we're Nordic. Call us what you want, but we call ourselves Icene. We don't call ourselves she. Those are two different yeah. white cultural elements, and they're still able to make that divide. I personally love adding those things. I don't think that, say, a Russian fae is going to walk up to their equivalent in terms of class and similar story and still think, oh, yeah, we're the same thing. They may recognize a distant cousin, but distant cousin is not the same thing as you know the same thing. And Changeling is so about identity, so how an individual character sees their own identity is about the old myths they tell themselves. I think that comparison is, is pretty important. That said, even inside this one era of what the backstory was, there were places where they broke that goal. For example, where House Fiona's introduced, they're fighting Cyclopses, which are Greek, and most of the story is centered around that particular thing. Not entirely sure why. That might be a good place to kind of talk about the messiness of that change and the next pivot. Pivot one was a clear decision to introduce a mythic story. And it spans a couple books that came out around the same time, and it's well-coordinated. Pivot two, in our notes, we sort of loosely put in denizens. But that story you mentioned with the Cyclops, that's from the Fiona write-up in the first Book of Houses, correct? Yes. Yeah, the Book of Houses, all of those actually came out in second edition, I think. They were all once they got away from the full-color write-up. So I'd I'd have to look at the release dates, but I do remember at one point looking up the Books of Houses, and I thought they were spread over the life of Changeling, and they're all actually pretty grouped in the last half of the line's existence. So I think that's really sort of part of the next pivot. And the next pivot is a lot less well-defined. Like I said, we kind of placed it at around Denizens of the Dreaming, where Denizens of the Dreaming introduces this story where the Tlaha and the Fumorians had a great war, and then there were these Adheen, which were basically, well, they weren't Adheen yet. They were the fairies who refused to take sides or sided with the Fumorians. 
but the Tuaha didn't destroy them for some reason, even though they sided with the Fomorians, they just cursed them. There's a big array of stuff there, but it implies a much bigger transformative moment in terms of what that represented in the history of the Fae. It's when they started to drift away from the original invasion cycle and tell different stories where the Fomorians and the Tuaha were sort of just directly opposed to each other instead of the fear gold being like a major pivot. I don't know quite how to describe this pivot. It's a weird one because so like the meta plot in Vampire is very, very Christian. This pivot in Changeling is really strange for me because it takes the invasion cycle, which is fundamentally the mythical history of Ireland, and decides that, no, it's really telling the story about fallen angels, I guess? Because the whole story reads a lot more like the fall than it does the invasion cycle at this point, which doesn't work very well. The other thing Denizens did is Denizens specifically called out, oh, okay, well, every culture has a version of this story. It gets into very Joseph Campbell territory where you have these archetypes and they're universal and they exist in all cultures. But because Joseph Campbell was European, they're very much the European archetypes. And there are definitely some core emotional themes that show up in stories. But when you really dig into different cultures, it's not nearly as universal as he presented it as. And Denizens goes a very full Joseph Campbell, just full Joseph Campbell. And you have the first Indian fae that's introduced and only exists in this fallen Adgeen state. But you don't have their... Tuahan counterpart, which creates this weird empty space. And there's a lot of other things throughout the Adgeen that sort of read that way. You get these Greek stories, but the only productive Greek story we have is the satyrs. And if you know anything about Greek culture, having satyrs represent all of Greek culture is super weird. And so that's this is kind of where the pivot happened. And I don't know how coordinated it was between the books. Unlike the first pivot, where I saw very similar themes in these books that came out around the same time and coordinated messages and page references between the books, this second pivot sort of happens over a year or two, and it didn't feel nearly as intentional. Even in the same book, sometimes you get both cultural focuses or the cultural focus of the earlier era and then the cultural vagueness of the second era. I feel like Noblesse Oblige is a really good example of this because the backstory for Gideon is lifted from the Mabinogian, which is a very Welsh sort of thing. But at the same time, the characters that show up in it have analogs in Irish mythology and Scottish mythology and probably a couple of others. But then you also get Fiona fighting at Cyclops for reasons and you get weirdness with the Ilunid backstory where the Thalane are allies of the Fomorian, but they're not Fomorian changelings for some reason. And you also get, and I forget in which book this was, where the Thalane are the children of the Fomorians. In the Shadow Court, when they were originally introduced, they're just super unseely and 
you know, what are they exactly? But like, this don't, is where it gets really messy. <laughs> it gets really messy. The last, I'd say, third of the Changeling line was all over the place in terms of its mythic references. If you really want to play with Misty Remembrance and say, it's totally fine that all of this is out there, and I want to run a game where certain people believe what's in this book and certain other changelings believe what's in this book, and there's a whole secret society convinced of the absolute truth of what's in this book, and you want to run that world, there is a place for that. Not everybody wants to wrangle that game, though. I think it's the most productive way to treat this period of the line, though. Like I mentioned earlier, there are places that hit resonances with the Mythic Age stuff from Exalted. The Dougal backstory hits that when the Fae die, something new enters reality note really hard. Both Gideon and Baylor's stories fit into a Mythic context pretty well. I have issues with the way they chose to to tell the story they told for Gideon because the story I remember, he's kind of the bad guy <laughs> by modern standards anyway. Well, that, so that gets into a really interesting space because we were talking about before we started the record the fact that Gideon's backstory really kind of takes the rough edges off the original myth. I'm a big believer that you know, okay, we're modern storytellers. Stories make a statement about the world we live in. We should make a statement about the world we live in. But World of Darkness is also a horror game. You can tell a horror story and frame the horror in a way that expresses what you think is horrific, and that's a statement. And I think that's when horror really shines. If we look back at the history of horror, like people demonizing the other really hard in horror tended to be racist. Lovecraft. And you can tell a super progressive horror story. It can be done, or you can make a different statement entirely. But the thing that got me about some of the Mythic Age stuff with the She is they don't go horror. With the original Mythic story, the fairy story is more horror than what they put in the game that has to constantly justify its place in a horror IP. Why are we blunting the edges on this thing? It's super weird to me. Even, like, Lanon's story, it's horror. But it's that weird, lazy, modern horror where it's just, it's edgelordy more than it's horror. Well, and the Leonin story. And this is a good example of how all the Mythic Age stuff in the Books of Houses really kind of boil down to the founder creation myths. And so the Leon and Mythic Age write-up is very much how did Leon and become a house? What about her founder? It does this really weird thing where it has a very, very rapey premise. Super rapey. Like, oh, Leon and is this super virginal, amazingly chaste, naive she. And all the other she go, oh, she needs to be broken in for her own good. Let's compete to see who's going to get to do that. And Leonin just shows up and goes, oh my, what's going on? I have the vapors. This is such a surprise. Oh my, this sex is fun. And they got around how awful that is by making the winner a woman. And I was sitting there thinking, okay, we're going to critique this and this person's going to be a villain. And, you know, we're going to lean into the horror as a way to express what we find horrific. 
No, they're a good guy at the end of the story. Oh. Oh. And Leonin, yeah, she's the, like, what? The, the person <laughs> who wins the contest is a skeezy borderline to full-on rapist, depending on how you read it. But at the end, she's the one who calls out Leonin's sins as being terrible and yep. gives her her house curse. How is she the moral voice? Yeah, I... That story, like... Uh, I am I am here for a first season Jessica Jones horror story about rape. Changeling is right for that story. Can we not make rapists good guys? Can we just not do that? Like, I'm not here for that. <laughs> yeah, and th- that was my problem with, like, the weird way they retold uh, Gideon's story. Because in the Mabinogian, he and his uncle, I think start a war so they can use the war as an excuse as cover so they can sneak into their uncle who happens to be Lou his castle so they can rape one of his servants because she's very comely it's just super weird that we have two instances of the house founders being just ridiculously awful but like they do it in a way like in Gideon's case, where they take out all the edge from that story, but they like inserted all of it into Leonin's story, and neither one of them works. Yeah, I. it's really kind of true. With that venting, there are a couple Mythic Age intro stories in these books that I actually really do like. I like the Skaha story that talks about this one she that co-mingles with humans and their daughter, Skaha, it puts her in a very specific place against the Fomorians and trapped in eternal combat with them, which is very mythic. It gives you a good hook if you want to do an end time story and have that gate opened and maybe she's gone completely mad and been corrupted by her endless battle or maybe you have to find her and save her and she's the only one you can contain them. Whatever angle you want to take, like it's usable. I similarly really like the story about the creation of iron at the beginning of the the Dougal chapter, which is, I'd say that's later mythic age, you know, birth of the iron age, probably more of a sundering story. It's definitely a sundering story. Yeah. But I mean, speaking to just how these creation myths play out, I do like some of them, but man, a few of these, I just had a hard time reading. Like the earlier stuff in Exalted, this is stuff to like look at for kind of a vague inspiration. Because for me, most of these, the house founder stories during the mythic, all kind of give me what the fuck, what's going on here questions. I don't know why Ileal rules Kanaat, which is the kingdom that's given to the Fearbold. There's a great story there that nobody ever told because that would be fascinating. And spoilers, Ileal aren't Fearbold. So that's not the answer. Yeah. <laughs> I like the sassiness of the Iceen backstory, but the particulars of it are not super inspiring. All of these things have little nuggets in there that you can mine for, like, tell the story the way it is, not, you know, written. Give the players a second to think about, well, wait, there are contradictions here. What really happened? And then 
you can tell an entire story around filling in those holes. Yeah, that is definitely true. I, I definitely think these things are useful, especially if you want to have a particular she house at the center of your story and you discover old dirty secrets about them or maybe it's just things that come up in the questing because you have a house member at the center of your motley. I think there are practical ways to use these stories, but you know, going back and learning the original stories they're based off of and reintroducing some of the harsher edges that White Wolf decided to PGify, if you will, I think there's definitely a place for that. That also kind of gets us forward into the last pivot, which was C20. When I read C20 originally, you know, and anyone who goes back and listens to our review of C20, well, no, we liked a lot of things in it, but we weren't a fan of some of the canon changes. Man, reading the Mythic Age content specifically as a slice really illuminated for me just how much C20 changed. Even in the second pivot, sort of in the middle of second edition, revised-ish era, the sort of pseudo-revised era change they never really got, they still didn't throw out Lu and the Valorian, Fomorian story. It appears again in the Bauer write-up. Slightly different, but mostly the same, with a lot more character detail and flair. But you get into C20, and there's this whole Red King thing. Like, who is the Red King? I don't know who the Red King is. I've never heard of this guy. And I went back and I looked at some of the end of the line for Morian stuff, and I went, oh, this is getting into, like, the White Court and the Red Court and the emergence of the Black Court. And these were some hooks that were thrown in in, like, random house write-ups. I think Skaha deals with some of it. But they just went full-on and threw out the Lu Valor thing entirely, which is weird because if you go for this red king angle instead of having the big culmination of their conflict be about Lu and balor then what's the point of house balor like what why do they matter yeah in the invasion cycle like the conflict between nud silverhand and brez balor and the reasons why neither one of them is really fit to be king is kind of the crux of that story and how it's deeply cultural, because Bress is a terrible person, but he's fit to be king. And Nud is a great person, but he's unfit to be king because he's deformed. It's that kind of mindset is really key to changeling, because changelings aren't super logical. They're very deeply supposed to be human. If you ditch the conflict between these two things that like a logical human being would look at and be like, no, the obvious solution is right here. There's not much to Changeling anymore, and it's kind of Changeling's main problem. There isn't a strong bad guy ever. It's true. I mean, when I run Changeling, I create my own bad guys, and they're always complicated. Like, they're always messy. And the crux of the fight always kind of boils down to the sort of thing that the fairies were fighting about in Dark Ages Fae. It's like, my season is best. No, my season is best. And they just bring all of this passion, and there's this thing they've invested meaning in. And because it's invested with meaning, it's the most important thing that has ever been. 
and I will come up with some conflict like that and spin it up in a way that my players will care about. But ultimately, I think the largest scale thing I've ever done was blowing up the Uptown Theater in Chicago as a Rhapsody. And that would have been a big deal. But from a human standpoint, it would have been a news cycle. And a few investors would have lost a ton of money. And then they would have cleared it away and something else would have happened. But to the way changelings think, that can be like the most terrible thing ever. But at the end of the day, that kind of work, that's hard narrative work. That is hard narrative work. And there isn't really a great central bad guy. Even the Thalane are kind of the bad guy of the moment. They're not organized. They're not like the Sabat or even really coordinated like the Black Spiral Dancers. And it does kind of go back to the story of like, what is the story we're telling? What's really happening? And especially getting into C20, it really ended up having less resolution for me than the previous eras. C20 did a lot of really good things generally around the mechanics and the system of the game and cleaning that up. But the cultural genericing they did, really, it's a continuation of the direction the game was going before C20. But at the same time, ditching the invasion cycle as the central metaphor for the game, while at the same time not acknowledging that if you want the game to the archetypes you have to decentralize Europe creates a confused and uninteresting narrative and really it ends up being the, the storyteller's job to insert a new narrative here kind of bringing the whole thing full circle some of the ways you can do that is by looking at what the backstory was in any of the different eras of changeling having a backstory whether that's going all the way back to Exalted, which is more recently written than a lot of the Changeling backstory is, or going back to that first era where it's just kind of a vague idea that there's a backstory here, or to the second era where you have a stronger invasion cycle, but at the same time they start to push away from it. It really depends upon what you find interesting as a storyteller. I have to be honest, having now read them all back to back. My favorite period for the Mythic Age is really that second half of first edition. You know, the first half of first edition, there really wasn't anything to, to latch on to. But from that first pivot, the original introduction of the invasion cycle, I really like the Lou-Valor connection. I think it gives House Valor a good reason for being that some of the other houses arguably don't really have. They're just kind of there to be an archetype. But Balor has a, a motivation. Like, I like a hook in the culture. Give me a set of assumptions and biases that a group is going to have. Make them a living political entity. And I feel like Balor really is that because of their myth and what they believe about themselves and what everyone else really believes about them. That second half of first edition really leads into that. And also told the uniquely Menahune story and gave space for groups like the issue or when you expand beyond just the issue and get into some maybe some of the groups from the C20 player's guide. I like the idea of using a lot of the artifacts from C20 
but with the approach to cultural assumptions and mythic age beliefs that are presented in later first edition with each other, I think that actually kind of creates the best changeling you can have. I think that works really well. One of the other ways to shoehorn stuff in to make room here is to look at the way that period in changeling revolves around the invasion cycle, which is by the name, you can understand that it's about an invasion of a particular land, in this case, one, two, three different invasions. There is no place on Earth that hasn't been repeatedly invaded. You know, if you were doing a Central Europe version of this, you would probably want to look at what historical Europeans thought of Hannibal or the Romans or maybe both and have, you know, multiple layers of this invasion and what kinds of ideas and stories came in during those invasions and how they would settle with what was there originally. And I think that that story especially speaks to the way a lot of the earlier Galen were written. They very intentionally avoided some of that in the C20 Player's Guide. The Australian changelings definitely had that talked about colonization in that section a lot, but they avoided it with a lot of the others. Whereas early on, the Menahune story is all about colonization. The Nunyahi story is all about colonization. And, you know, there are issues with reducing a culture to that. Thankfully, the splats aren't written that way, just kind of the overarching pathway to get there. But acknowledging that and using the invasion cycle as a way think about, all right, how do fairies, how do these types of creatures react to that? And then let's dig into it and make it more complicated and add the other aspects of these cultures aside from just their identity as colonized cultures and mix all that together in a pot and get something a little more complete out. I think there is, there's a lot of space there and there's a lot of parallel if you're willing to dig into it. Again, less so with the C20 Player's Guide kits because they tried to be more just pure archetypes, which are useful for different stories. But I, I do think that there's a place for taking that approach. The only real problem with the whole story is where the inanime fit in. And we've kind of done that too. Man, I yeah, I, uh, the mythic age for the inanime. At some point, fairies became elements. Full stop. The inanime story is so on the side, like it's totally separate and there's a fun war there, but it's not connected to the rest of Changeling. Yeah, it's the only place we've talked about so far where Dark Ages Fae kind of provides the connecting tissue because the War of the Seasons and the War of Shaping are very similar stories in a lot of ways yeah it it doesn't quite work together (laughs) well and it's also worth mentioning that other that pivot that i hadn't really thought about is in the original inanime book the inanime story really kind of starts with the sundering like their whole metaphor is about the dynamic of being shaped the war over oh my god, why did this one phyla give away the secrets and allow us to be shaped? And that's a sundering story. That's not a mythic age story. 
they basically don't mention the mythic age in any meaningful way in the original book. In C20, the arc they set up is originally there were the Fomorians, and then where the Firbolg were originally in Court of All Kings, we're just going to put the Inanime here. The Inanime appeared, and they weren't glorious good counterparts to these demons. They were just neutral. What their relationship is to the Fomorians? Well, they didn't like them because they're evil, but question mark. And then the Tuaha come in and this whole thing happens. And I really just kind of felt like the Inanime and that are set pieces. Like, I think they are described as getting involved, but it felt weirdly obligatory. And their whole war is largely missing. Their conflict is an interesting story, and I think it has a place and a resonance in certain Changeling stories. But the story that every era of Changeling has told doesn't suit fitting that in, except in very specific ways. And it's super awkward. That's really the mythic age from the start to finish. I don't know how well we really described that second pivot and everything that came after but like we said it's, it's a little all over the place i hope that you found some details here that you could use you got a picture of how the mythic age has changed over the years and has been interesting and confusing and sometimes a little bit disengaging depending on what you're leaning on but this is going to be sort of the approach we're going to take with every era of the changeling canon our next episode is going to be about the Sundering, and then we will get into the Shattering and on and so forth. So hopefully by the end of this, there will be a pretty good map of all of Changeling canon, and the later episodes should be a little bit more defined than this one. I hope you got something useful out of this. As part of posting this, we are going to list the page references for all of the sections on the Mythic Age that we discovered in our reading. I'm sure there are a few things missing, a few eras that talk about the Mythic Age, the Age of Legends, that weren't headered that way, and we may have missed them, but we tried to create a pretty comprehensive reading list so you know exactly where to go to kind of follow our path and how we got here. We posted that in our Podbean feed, so if you go to walkingawayfromarcadia.podbean.com, you can find it there, or it might be in your podcasting application as well. But we did want to make that available to help provide guidance for exactly what we read getting to where we got. It is all the Changeling books because Graceful Wicked Masks sort of presents itself. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you join us for our next conversation on Walking Away from Arcadia. Bye.